Hello and you are listening to Scar Joe A Gogo, the podcast where I chronicle and dissect the films of Scarlett Johansson in chronological order. I'm Luke and this week I'm talking about We Bought a Zoo. We're here to learn, not just to yarn, for our most loved celebrity. We'll watch the screen, what can we glean from her career trajectory? Cause she'd prefer if you'd refer to her as Miss Johansson. Don't be a jerk to Miss Johansson. Respect her work. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe go. Does everything have to happen for a reason? Do we have to honestly pick apart every tiny little detail, read into and analyze motivations? I mean, seriously, in today's busy world, we don't have time to worry about things like themes, metaphors, symbols, or subtext. Sometimes you just wake up with an inexplicable and insatiable desire to buy a fucking zoo. You've thought, you can relate to this, you've thought about owning a monkey, right? You've dreamt about riding a tiger or washing an elephant. But what if you owned a special place where you could do all of these things at the exact same time? Buying a zoo is an incredibly relatable human desire. It's something we've all struggled with. And then here, in the year 2011, a film finally comes along that says, why? Why buy a zoo? Why the fuck not? Now, imagine Scarlett Johansson, star of this podcast, sitting by the phone anxiously, alone. The phone rings. Hello, she says, in a voice which admittedly is far deeper and huskier than my own. Scarlett Johansson speaking, (laughs) as if we didn't already know. And then on the other end of the line, we hear, hi. It's writer and director Cameron Crowe. I have to ask you one important question. Scarlett Johansson, do you want to buy a zoo? What was her response? You, my friend, are about to find out. But first, when we last left Scarlett Johansson, you'll recall she was playing a strong but somewhat subdued Black Widow in the seemingly improvised sequel Iron Man too. Now this was her fledgling Black Widow effort. There's a lot that needs to happen before she's completely comfortable in the catsuit, before everybody figures out what this character really is about. But it was a really strong first step. And I said at the time, I reiterate again, for me this enters the third act of her career. Which again, not to say the last. Five acts, Shakespeare. Could be Tanax, I don't know. She could be uh, in a reboot of Driving Miss Daisy sometime in the distant future, playing the Jessica Tandy role. She might be 95 and playing Pruneface in Star Wars Episode 78. I don't know what the future holds. That's what makes this podcast very exciting. It is a journey of discovery, and I'm the intrepid Scarlet Scientist that's going to help guide you along the way. Now, before we get started on the film itself, we bought a zoo. I want to just state a few caveats here. I was very disappointed to learn that this was based 
on a true story. I've never seen this film until I watched it just about, what, half an hour ago for the podcast. So I didn't really know what to expect, and when I heard it was based on a true story, a little bit of a frowny face. Because that denotes a certain type of pace and plausibility to the events. So that means that, quite sadly, I began to realise really early on that we're not likely to see a group of monkeys driving a car or a person being um, comedically sexually assaulted by a panda or like Matt Damon sliding down a giraffe's neck yelling Yabby Dabba Zoo or anything like that. So temper your expectations. It's not that kind of movie, sadly. Secondly, the title I thought was very misleading. I mean, you see the poster which has Matt Damon and Scarlett Johansson I see a man and a woman standing in close proximity to each other, and I think, this is a couple. These two are getting it on, hopefully married. But that's my assumption. So I'm assuming the two of these people, they're a couple, they have to pull their resources, they have to plan it all out, write lists of their favourite animals and vote, ooh, I'd really like to have some walruses in there, mmm, I prefer seals, well, can we have a bit of each, it's getting expensive, all that sort of thing. But no, doesn't happen. This film really should be called Matt Damon Bought a Zoo, because he bought the zoo himself with his own money. In fact, Scarlett, actually, as we get into the story, she came along with the zoo. She was part of the deal, kind of like um, a bonus primate that was thrown in to the sale. But we'll get there. I'm going to explain all that. But I just, I think you need to be aware of those things in order to um, ensure you don't have a frowny face like I did. But let's start at the very beginning of We Bought a Zoo, which starts with bees. Killer bees crawling all over the screen. And, uh... Narrators are very common in Scarlett Johansson movies. Unfortunately, her husky voice isn't leading us into this. It is instead Matt Damon's character's uh, 13 or 14 or however old he is, son. And he says, My dad is a writer who specialised in adventure. So this is going to be an adventure story, I guess. That's the thesis statement from this kid, if we are going to trust him. Can you trust teenagers? Doubtful, but let's see what happens. And uh, yeah, Matt Damon is surrounded by killer bees. And I guess Cameron Crowe also proves with this opening premise that the only people interested in telling the story of writers are other writers. Like, writers really love writing about writing. They always make it sound far more glamorous than I think it is in real life as well. Because let's be honest, for every hour this Matt Damon character spent surrounded by killer bees, he probably spent like 15 hours sitting in front of a computer in his underwear. Writing is bullshit, is what I'm uh, trying to say. And uh, so begins the adventure of We Bought a Zoo, where Matt Damon, he's basically a single father, he has a recently deceased wife, she died six months ago, and he has to wrangle his two children, a young teenage boy called Dylan, and a little animal girl who's about six, called Rosie. And um, he's about to start on what we're promised will be his greatest adventure yet. And meanwhile, though, he has that sort of day-to-day -day grind. He's got hot mothers at the school offering him lasagna. He's got a, a droll Thomas Hayden Church playing his older brother who's trying to set him up. But Matt Damon is far too sad and too busy for any of that shit. And then he quits his job at the paper because, like, everything's going online. He can't keep up with all the trons and the grids. 
and the lolcats and everything. All those bits and bites are just driving him bananas. Bananas, as he'd probably say, wouldn't he? And then he gets called into school because his son, Dylan, disappointing the dad by stealing stuff. So, um, interesting as well. Matt Damon is super serious and real, but all the minor supporting characters in the beginning are these really tonally weird caricatures. Like the lasagna woman is really over the top, and now the soft-spoken, overly concerned principal is, um, again, just like a cartoon character as he expels Dylan, not just for stealing, but also for drawing a picture of a guy getting his head ripped off. So these kids have some pretty dark, unresolved issues, including the fact that now the goddamn neighbors are too loud. They're throwing a party and Rosie can't sleep. Don't they realize a woman died? So Damon has to go out house hunting with his tiny daughter and a comical real estate agent caricature to find a new place to live. And they do find it. It's an 18-acre property. But you guys, you're not going to believe this. There is a catch. There is a goddamn zoo attached to it. And if you buy this house, you have to buy the zoo too and pay for all the animals and stuff. But don't worry, he's a writer, right? So he should be able to afford this shit. And he buys the zoo, just like the title promised you he would. He buys the zoo because apparently his six-year-old daughter, who is really keen on the zoo idea, is also his financial advisor. And by the way, if you had a dollar for every time someone says zoo in this film, you would definitely be able to afford to fund the sequel. So they move to the zoo, where young teenage Elle Fanning also works, which seems to capture the reluctant son Dylan's attention for a little while there, because no one's really sold on this zoo idea. And then, a full 26 minutes into the film, that's longer than an episode of the Golden Girls. We get a rather dark, moody shot of Scarlett Johansson. Now picture this, I want you to open up a blank canvas in your mind so I can paint this picture of Scarlett on it for you. She's standing in the heavy rain, she's wearing a dark overcoat and she has her hood pulled up over her head. And she's sort of intensely watching the car of new arrivals as they drive by. And her look is somewhere between suspicion and disapproval, I think. And I thought with this shot, she already reads as a kind of isolated outsider. You know, someone who has fled the human world in order to devote her life to animals. But when she sort of sees the family get out of the car and sees them start interacting with each other from a distance, she does turn briefly to her beardy offsider and gives a kind of half smile, a kind of this should prove interesting kind of smile. And I, for one, at this stage, realizing this is a two hour movie, certainly hope that she's right. So the next day, Sunshine, the staff are all lined up to introduce themselves to Matt Damon, starting with Scarlett, who really is in control of this group and stands in the center here. We'll always talk about what her first lines are in a film. This time it's, hi, Kelly Foster, head zookeeper. She is large and in charge, and she's really pushing that strong, deep, confident voice that she has. Uh, she's got brownish hair, it's tied back, minimal makeup. She's wearing uh, very masculine clothes. This is definitely not a femme fatale role. She's not playing any kind of temptress. She actually appears very professional and very down to earth. And she introduces a bunch of other people that work at the zoo, like um, Beardy, Almost Famous is there, you know, the Almost Famous kid. He's got a monkey on his shoulder. Uh, Elle Fanning and another woman. 
I don't know who the woman is. She gets fired later, so I don't get too attached to her. Excited about the monkey? I still kind of... There's a part of me. I know this is a true story, but I am hoping that this monkey just goes totally apeshit, bananas, bananas, and drives a car all over the place, preferably through a supermarket. But monkeys are my second favorite thing. My first favorite thing here is Scarlet, and she stands, very strong pose, arms folded, legs apart. It's a power pose. Matt Damon is really going to have to work to impress this woman. And you know, Damon predictably fumbles around a bit, and we can tell she thinks he's a little bit of a dick. City slicker coming in here, trying to run a zoo. Ha! It's Rococulus. And it does also, it strikes me that this is exactly how Scarlett would both act and dress if she was in a Jurassic Park movie. It's totally that vibe. And she briefs Damon on an upcoming inspection, and then she briefs him about their depressed bear, Buster. And what I like about this is she really pulls all these things off convincingly. Um, this isn't one of those things where you don't believe the actor in the role. This is certainly not like a, hey, it's Denise Richards, super scientist. No, 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 absolutely not. Scarlett feels oddly very connected to this environment. And as she talks about these animals with confidence, I found that even though I've seen her play so many roles in the lead up to this, I really do buy her as the head zookeeper. Like I'm, I'm impressed with the impression that she leaves us with at the beginning. It's working for me. And now Scarlett is imitating tiger sounds while bent over a railing looking at a tiger and the tiger, you know, can believe this, it's talking back to her. This is incredible. Like, just when I thought we'd seen all her talents, she is talking to tigers. And then she, like, starts talking about how tigers can kill you and, and gives that little speech. And she's got such a wonderful voice and there's all this really interesting information about sexy, powerful tigers that I'm starting to think, I wish she had a podcast where she just taught you about stuff. Like some Scarlet Science just taught you stuff about the world. Wouldn't that be great? We could, I could stop doing this. We could both turn this off right now and we could be listening to that instead. It would be incredible. So Scarlet, remember, I'm gonna be focusing mostly on the Scarlet stuff in this film. Scarlet, recognizing Matt Damon's inexperience, starts to get really serious here and she puts him on the spot. She's like, why the hell did you buy a zoo anyway? And if we were going to romanticize the zoo, maybe like I did at the beginning, where you're thinking, oh, you know, it's all riding tigers while washing elephants and um, having a cigar with a monkey. If you're thinking that it's going to be an easy thing, it's not. This is where Scarlet here is saying, you know, this is a shitty situation. It's hard work. And she has to shovel shit. She says that. She's a shit shoveler. She doesn't get paid for any of this. She's doing it because she's passionate about it. She lives with her mother, for Christ's sake. And he better be serious about undertaking all of this. This better not just be a, a flash-in-the-pan kind of reckless, woke up one morning and thought, oh, I'll buy a zoo. And more importantly, she's like, why did you buy a fucking zoo, you idiot? Why? Why? And Damon's like, why not? and walks away, leaving both her and the audience completely perplexed. Points to Cameron Crowe, though, because this story, to be honest, isn't particularly thrilling me, but he has written a strong, believable character for Scarlet. I mean, this is somebody who feels like she has a life outside the events of the film, and Scarlet is inhabiting that character. 
very well. And it's kind of nice to feel like, as we enter this third phase, that she does seem to have gotten this gigantic shot of confidence. She's been given too many wafer-thin characters in the lead-up to this, which are kind of only doing things because the plot need her to do it. And usually she's some sort of catalyst for the men characters. And you almost feel like she's sort of this automaton in the corner who um, only flickers to life when a male character enters the scene. But I think this time there really is that sense that there's more to her than that. And, you know, we know Matt Damon's got his problems. He's got tons of problems. He's got problems you wouldn't want to give to a monkey on a rock. But she's got her own issues too. It's not easy for anybody. And I admire Cameron Crowe for helping her find that depth. And then we also get to see some downtime where they're in a bar and Scarlett has shed that professional front somewhat and is seen relaxing and laughing with her co-workers, which includes the beardy who seems pretty intent on killing uh, the inspector that's going to come around and inspect the zoo because of some shady backstory the two of them have. And it's a nice sort of comedy bit from Scarlett as she enjoys a drink and lists all of the things Beardy says as he says them, as though she's heard this many, many times before. Again, creating a life outside the events of the film. And uh, when she gives Damon a drink, she's far warmer than she was when she confronted him at the zoo. Although she doesn't linger. This isn't a romantic scene. She's just like, here you are, welcome, have a drink, you're the new boss. And then she goes on her way. But what I do like is that separation between roles. It feels real. And it is relatable. Like, if you first started a new job and you meet everybody, there's a certain sort of um, professional formality. But then if at the end of the week you all have a drink or something... It's not like people completely change, but you get to see that other side and you get to dig a little bit deeper. And I think um, Crowe's successfully doing that with the characters here. Now, Thomas Hayden Church, the Sandman from Spider-Man 3, he turns up to further diss this whole zoo thing and point out that Damon, what he's really getting is a zoo load of debt. And he also attempts to objectify Scarlet. He sees her walking past and suggests that Damon should ditch the zoo but keep her. But it's nice that Damon's character is too classy to take the bait here. And Scarlet just walks by and um, says hi and, and kind of indirectly emasculates Thomas Hayden Church by having a deeper voice than he even does. And L. L. Fanning is getting along with the son Dylan, so it looks like there's an age-appropriate cute blonde for every man who owns the zoo. I mean, what are the odds of that? Now we just got to hook Rosie up with somebody, hopefully not a uh, beardy. And then later on, Damon tells Scarlett that she really should take some time to herself because it's night time and she's still working like a boss. She's doing everything. So she gives him a ton of jobs to do that we all know he's going to mess up. And, but it's still, it's hard for her to leave. And I like that. I like her sense of place, her dedication to where she works. I really do believe that she feels an ownership and a love for her surroundings that have really nothing to do with Matt Damon and what he's going through. But of course she goes and then the idiot son Dylan releases a whole bunch of snakes. So next morning Scarlett has to organise to clean it all up. But she's in good spirits until this shitty son gets in an argument with Matt Damon and he kicks one of the snakes, launching it into the air. And it's cool that that's what triggers Scarlet off and gets her scowling. She's like, it's all fun and games until somebody kicks one of my snakes. Don't kick one of my snakes, son. 
That's a shitty thing to do. And then we see her trussing up a carcass to feed for the tiger, which, again, it's another excellent skill, which Scarlett Johansson handles like a professional. And she tells Damon that his shitty son shouldn't kick snakes. And he's like, oh, you want some help with that big, heavy animal carcass? This, like, huge chunk of meat that Scarlett Johansson is defiantly carrying around like a child. And she's like, nope, I got this. What, because she's awesome? That's why? I thought this was totally badass. This was like in Game of Thrones when Tywin skins that deer. Tiny Scarlett Johansson just lugging around this uh, huge piece of meat like she's in the fucking Flintstones. Fantastic. But then it's panic stations because the inspector turns up early and Scarlett is back in arms folded, legs apart, defense pose. Definitely be some, been some uh, serious thought about the body language of this character and how this character carries themselves. Certainly more thought than I think we've seen in some previous films. And uh, John Michael Higgins is the inspector, which is a fun person to be doing it. If you don't know who John Michael Higgins is by name, Google it, because you'll see him and you'll go, ah, that guy. Shows up in a lot of character comedy roles. And I noticed he did look Scarlet up and down when he realises that she's the zookeeper, uh, sort of doubting her zoological potency and ability, but he'll be surprised because I've seen her uh, do some pretty incredible zoo things already. And I noticed that it's around this time when she starts looking at Damon differently. That's where we're getting the sort of intense big eyes and that little wry half smile that we've seen whenever she goes into seductress mode. But it's nice because it's a background thing. It's not something that he's aware of. It's not about the two of them getting into these romantic situations where you think, oh, this is brewing. It's more him dealing with day-to-day life and being oblivious to the fact that she is starting to think of him in a different way. I think it's kind of rare you get to see things develop like that. And then the inspector leaves. They have a month to make this zoo absolutely spotless. They've got to polish all the tigers, buff the monkeys, dust all the cages. You know what it's like. And then uh, Scarlet gets to be badass again when a bear escapes. Don't know how the bear escaped. And she gets to run around with a tranquilizer gun. She's going to go and fight a bear, except Damon tries to talk to the bear, which slaps the gun out of his hand, spits all over him, and then the others have to come and shoot the bear and bail him out. And no doubt force him to watch Grizzly Man, a wonderful but sobering documentary about bears. And, you know, what we're seeing here, obviously, is all part of the life metaphors coming in. That idea of people and animals living in cages and as opposed to seeing an animal living totally free and what this is doing to Matt Damon's mental state. You know, sometimes, as people, we have to throw off the oppressive shackles of society and just buy a fucking zoo. Think about that. Think how it would change your life. Chip in with a couple of friends if you need to. Put put a zoo on on layaway, whatever you need to do. But for this guy, the zoo is not just a place of monkeys and elephants, but it's a place of healing and monkeys and elephants. Then another bar scene, uh, Scarlet definitely appears to be falling for him now. It's shown just through the way that she looks at him, but at least it is being earned. It's not suddenly happening just because the plot requires it, which is what usually happens in these films. And then Damon walks home in the dark with Scarlet, and they talk about Lily and Dylan's blossoming relationship, but there's definitely a subtext there. Something sort of unspoken about the two of them. And she's trying to get to know him, get under the surface, and he says, 
don't take offense if I don't hit on you. He's basically saying, you know, he's not ready. And she says, well, actually, I'd be offended if you did. And then points out that if she did want to kiss him, you know, she would have. He wouldn't have had a choice in it. And I think that's solid, Cameron Crowe. These are strong characters. And you're committing to the lives. Like, they're neither of them are ready for it yet. And you know that from what we've been shown so far. And you've committed to that. So I'm still not excited about your buying a zoo story, but at least you're not falling into the traps and pitfalls of so many writers before you who I think have given us less than stellar product. But buying a zoo is expensive business and money is running out. And of course, the staff know this. They realize that Matt Damon has no idea what he's doing. Scarlett sits and listens to one of the workers outlining these concerns. Again, she's got a very masculine pose, uh, sitting legs apart. Makes me very happy that they're thinking about her character. She's thinking about her character. I'm not seeing this kind of body language from her before. It's a real effort to inhabit somebody else. And I actually find it quite ironic that she looks more comfortable and confident here to me than she did when she sort of awkwardly paraded the Black Widow suit for the first time in Iron Man 2. There was something about that which didn't fit her. It looked odd. It looked tight and awkward and like she didn't know how to carry herself. It wasn't this sexy, slinky thing that I think I was probably expecting. But here, in this more masculine pose, um, I do find her surprisingly comfortable. And look, don't worry about the money. This is a buying a zoo fantasy. I don't want you guys to get upset about that and to lose the dream. Turns out the dead wife left him $84,000 of what she calls circus money. Did she have shares in a circus? No, that's just her term for money, I guess, to do stupid things with. To act like a clown with, you might say. It is, any way you put it, it is a gift from beyond the grave and it is going to bail out this damn zoo. And Scarlett hears the news uh, quite respectfully while wearing another in a long line of rather fetching sweaters that a character seems to wear in this film whenever um, she's enjoying her downtime. And the thing is, when she hears that Matt Damon's going to save the zoo, she looks at him so joyously and proudly that you will just melt. I don't care how cynical you are. I don't care if you're Aubrey Plaza or Grumpy Cat or Aubrey Plaza voicing Grumpy Cat. In a horrible made-for-tea Christmas movie, your heart will melt. You will wish that someone in your life would have that kind of faith in you. Would look at you that proudly. It is a beautiful little moment. And then we've got our fixing up a zoo montage, including crossing days off a calendar. You are an innovator, Cameron Crowe. How did you think of that to show the passing of time? interesting side note too Scarlett is wearing her hair down now and it seems far more blonde again and it's also just happens to be Black Widow Avengers length as though she's very soon gonna have it dyed red in order to make oh I don't know a movie called The Avengers next I got a little kick out of that one and then in a hardware store the six-year-old Rosie yells out the title of the film for a second time which gets everyone at the hardware store totally pumped. And they're all like, yeah, we'll come to the zoo when it opens because everybody loves a zoo. Everybody except for the tiger. Now, did I mention this tiger? He was an old tiger. This is the tiger that Scarlet communicates with. This tiger is dying. 
But Matt Damon won't accept that he's dying because of metaphors and stuff. I've lost a wife. I'm not losing a tiger too. You will be my tiger wife. Like a tiger in the bedroom. And like a tiger in every other room. Because you are an actual tiger. And sure enough, the next day the tiger is stuck up on a rock and won't move. And Scarlet's concerned about this and she's like, it's time for the tiger to go. Man up, Damon. Call the vet or do it yourself with your fists if you have to. Tear out its throat with your teeth. I don't care, but this tiger cannot suffer anymore. But he's still not into it. So Scarlet decides to scare the tiger with loud noises. And I don't know why, but I find the image of Scarlet jumping up and down yelling and hitting a red plastic bucket with a spoon absolutely adorable. She could release an album of herself doing this and I would totally buy and listen to it. And then Scarlet's like, Matt Damon, this tiger is in so much pain. I can't watch this. It's going to happen and you need to fix it. And she really means it. Like she really cares. You can tell she keeps pushing him. And I love this sequence because she's affected by it, obviously. She's affected by her love of the tiger, but she's keeping it really strong because she's so frustrated with Damon being such a pussy about this giant pussy tiger thing. No, I'm being serious here because this is a really good bit. And just when you think she's going to leave and cry, like she turns away, she looks like she's going to break, she turns back and she just really lets him have it. Aggressive, gritted teeth yells at him, lets him know that this is a fucking serious matter and he needs to deal with it. It really is a great performance. And I'm watching it thinking, you are awesome, Scarlett. I have missed this. I've missed you having the opportunity to perform because you are a performer. You're a great performer, but a lot of shitty writers and directors do not give you a chance. I notice I now am talking directly to Scarlett Johansson as though she listens to this. She doesn't. And then Scarlett gives Dylan the secret to talking to girls. And if you're a guy out there, a young man, even an older man who's never learnt this secret, get a pen and paper to jot this down. I'll wait. You got it? I can wait longer. No, a pen. Well, type it into your phone. Um, you should have a note app there. Yep. No, no, just press that. That's it. Yep. Okay, you've got it. The secret to talking to girls is listening. Listening! It's as easy as that. Is there anything Scarlet cannot do in this film? And then another really sweet scene. She gets to console a more subdued Matt Damon on the porch. And he's just fucking exhausted, this poor guy. And they silently hold hands just for a moment before breaking away. Again, not a romantic thing, it's a supportive thing. It's a solidarity thing. And that's when Matt Damon starts to really open up about his wife. And I haven't mentioned Matt Damon much here. It's not uh, Matt, Matt Agaga. I'd edit that out if I wasn't so lazy. But he is definitely, he's likable in this role. And they have a good chemistry together. And despite this being a sad conversation, the two of them do find moments of laughter within it. And I like that Scarlett's giving him support and respect, but not pity. It's a very well-pitched scene. She never lets him go down that dark path or gets so 
embroiled in what he's doing that she forgets who she is and what she's doing. And in fact, the scene ends with, um, he basically states, I cannot let go. And she goes, I can, and gets up and goes, sleep well, sweet dreams. And she goes, so she's not going to wallow with him like a pig in sad mud. Tough love and it's working. But Dylan, the kid overhears, this leads to all sorts of father-son angst. I don't mean to be dismissive about that. It's actually a very raw scene. It gets quite brutal. It's a really good father and son, angry, exhausted, and just letting everything out. Kids all, I hate it here. You wasted all our money. Wasted? Uh, hello? We bought a fucking zoo. YOLO. That's why I don't have kids. You buy them like a whole fucking zoo and they complain that the zebra's stripes are too close together. Never satisfied. So, shit. It's time. Father and son reconcile. They've got to kill this tiger because, you know, metaphors. No one is moving on with their life while this tiger survives. Damon sits in the dark looking at photos of his late wife on the laptop and he cries. But he remembers the good times too as the pictures sort of come to life. Like, he remembers that picnic when everyone ran around in circles with their arms in the air. That was a fun time until everyone got dizzy and vomited up their potato salad. That part, not so great. And so they put up a sign to memorialize the tiger. We don't get to see the tiger get put down or anything like that. I assume that they waited until it just was so sick, so quiet, so calm that Matt Damon was able to enter the cage and beat the shit out of it to death with his fists. Then we see some new baby peacocks being born uh, in order to remind us of that Circle of Life song. And the final inspection is about to begin. Scarlet is seen washing the windows, which seems to me like a kind of low priority for a head zookeeper. Perhaps give that job to one of the children while you go and wrestle a bear or something. But uh, they've all got their part to do. Inspector turns up. Scarlet does have a tense moment during the inspection when the lion cage won't lock. She starts to panic. She has to distract the lion while Beardy sorts it out. She calls the lion handsome and baby and lures him away from Beardy with her Scarlet siren call. No one is eaten. Scarlet averts the crisis and is back in arms folded, cool mode, ice cold by the time the inspector returns. And they pass the inspection thanks to her quick thinking and literal animal magnetism. Scarlet happy jumps, she hugs Matt Damon, but she does it respectfully. Alright, we're getting towards the end. Elle and Dylan are getting it together. There's a big storm. Oh no, will this affect the opening? No, it won't because God loves zoos and he brings out the sun to dry up everybody's tears. They all have fancy uniforms now, including Scarlet. She amps everyone up. We're going to open this goddamn zoo we've been talking so much about. Everyone turns up. Everyone from the, the surrounding areas. They come from miles away and go zoo crazy ready to throw their hard-earned American dollars at the chance to see a lion in a poorly constructed enclosure. But can you believe this? In the storm, this huge, thick tree trunk fell across the entrance, so everybody's stuck on the other side. So Matt Damon and Scarlett help everyone climb over the tree. Like, they stand on this tree and pull people up over this tree, which is about, you know, taller than Matt Damon. 
so that they can climb over the tree and get into the zoo. So they've got kids, they've got old people climbing over a fallen tree to get to a zoo. Strikes me as the kind of occupational health and safety disaster that you just do not want at the opening of your brand new zoo. Seems like a lawsuit waiting to happen. But these guys, everyone's just in such a frothing zoo frenzy that they honestly do not give a fuck. They would scale the wall from Game of Thrones to get in there and start snapping pictures of tortoises with their iPhones. That's how much they want it. They can fucking taste it. So they're like, Scarlet, give me a hand. I might be an 85-year-old woman with a walking frame and an IV, but pull me up over these uh, dangerous splinters and let's go and see some fucking kangaroos. Scarlet gives a talk about tigers to the tourists. Owning it once again, I would totally subscribe to the Talking Tigers with Scarlett Johansson podcast. If the career goes south, Scarlett, I'm telling you, podcasts work for me. It hasn't worked that well for me. Worked for Kevin Smith. Plus, no more workouts to keep in Black Widow shape. You could get so fat, you get kicked off a plane. And then in all this excitement, Scarlett catches Matt Damon alone in the ticket booth and they kiss twice she admits to having a crush on him we kind of knew this was coming it's still a hollywood film the two of them kind of have to get together but it's actually done really respectfully she says after they break away from the kiss that if they are standing next to each other again at new year's eve and i don't know how long away that is presumably a couple of months that she would like to do it again which i think is a classy move she's showing her hand but not the rest of her body yet not without a ring mister Uh, And thereby gives him time to think about how she fits into his new life and how he feels about moving on romantically with his wife gone. Well played, Cameron Crowe. And, you know, because considering it was inevitable that two would become romantically linked, I don't think this is a bad way to play it. And it fits in with everything we know about the characters so far. And then red kites fill the sky. Scarlet puts her arm around the little girl Rosie like she's already hers. She's all, you may have bought a zoo, but I have one new little girl and your brother and your father too. You are mine, all mine. Elephant, tigers, bears, everything, all under Scarlett Johansson's presumably delightful thumb. We bought a zoo, says Matt Damon again. You did that, says Thomas Hayden Church, like we needed reassuring that that's what we were watching for the last two hours. And then we end with Matt Damon telling the kids about how he first met their mother. And he'd said to her as he saw her in a cafe, why would you, a woman as amazing as you, he just means amazing looking, he didn't know what she was like. She could have been a white power Nazi lizard person from Mars, for all he knows. But why would an amazing looking woman like you be ever interested in a dude like me, a dude like sexy, Oscar-winning, millionaire Matt Damon me. And she says, why not? Why not indeed? As I said at the beginning, why does everything have to have a reason? I'm gonna buy a zoo tomorrow. So, in conclusion, you know what? I don't love this film at all. It's not a story that grabbed me, but I really can't fault its intent. I think there's a real sincerity to it. And I also can't fault the filmmaking, perhaps except for the hack calendar crossing off sequence. But to his credit, Crow writes and directs solid characters 
who have a reason to be and who lead the plot rather than the other way around. And I think what we've learnt through this and through the shows that have preceded this is that it doesn't necessarily take a great movie to make for a great performance. It's not about it has to be her absolute best movies, the most critically acclaimed, the most loved, or anything like that. It just takes a writer and director who has genuine respect for their cast and who's willing to give an actor something meaningful to do. He got it right and she benefits because of it. This is one of the good ones on the Scarlet performance list. Always ask why was she cast? Because Cameron Crowe can make a movie. That's why she did it. That's why he wanted her. Other people in contention were um, Amy Adams, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who I also like. Both people that are attractive but can play quite down-to-earth characters. He went with Scarlet, and I'm glad he did. Why, why not? Scarcabulary? What's the new phrase we've picked up to add to our lexicon? I think just buying a zoo is a great phrase on its own. Like, what a great way to express the stupid, idiotic, clueless thing you did that cost you a lot of money. I'm going to Comic-Con on the weekend. What am I going to buy there? A wise investment for a gentleman my age? No, I'm probably just going to buy a fucking zoo. Gonna spend all that circus money. And finally, her three greatest feats. What will we remember her for in this movie? Apart from the fact that she did a really good job and played an interesting character. Well, I'll tell you what. Number one, she talked to a tiger in its own unique tiger language. Two, she trussed up a giant carcass like she was catering for Barney Rubble. Unparalleled mate skills. Super impressive. And three, she smacked the shit out of a bucket with a spoon, which might not appeal to anyone else, but it certainly appealed to me. And next time on Scar Joe Gogo, you're not going to believe this. We're doing The Avengers. That's a fun film that people have actually seen. It's when Joss Whedon gets hold of Black Widow and really starts to work with Scarlet to do something special with the character. So certainly an episode which I'm looking forward to, even though I'm sure it's also a huge amount of pressure because you all have an opinion on Avengers. And I am totally unafraid to ruffle your collective jimmies. And in the meantime, please listen to the other shows. I co-host Fruitless Pursuits Cast, which is a pop culture podcast where we review movies, films, they're the same thing. Uh, We talk about movie news. We talk about the week in pop culture. We bullshit about the week in pop culture. That's a lot of fun. And also I host The Book Was Better, where myself and another guest read a shitty novelization of a film. We pick out all the best bits and we make fun of it. It's way better than I'm making it sound. You can find out about all these things at www.fruitlesspursuits.com, including links to our Facebook group if you want to discuss any of this with me. And also, very proud to announce, you will find us on geekvision.tv, which is a network of all sorts of wonderful geeky stuff, and they've been kind enough to invite us into their home and uh, let us be a part of that network as well. So do go to Geek Vision TV if you prefer, or as well. 
check out all their other stuff, check out all my other stuff, go to the supermarket, check out the checkouts. And until next week, I'm checking out. Just promise me one thing, that you will always hold on to your buying a zoo dream. Bye zoo everybody, peace. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe would go.